Welcome to the Maine Science Podcast. I'm Kate Dickerson. Today's episode is a conversation I had with Magda Bwashkovich, one of the founders and the CEO of NewRight, a startup company working on providing a diagnosis of peripheral neuropathy. We'll get into what that is during our conversation, and we'll also find out how Magda found her way in the world of science. I had a great time talking to Magda, and I hope you find her work and story as interesting as I did. Magda, welcome to the Main Science Podcast. You are uh, a researcher and a CEO and a founder, startup founder of New Right, which is wicked cool. But I thought we could go before that. You could talk a little bit about how you became a research scientist who started her own lab. Um, and I know from doing a little bit of background, you, you um, took an atypical approach to your PhD in that you didn't do it right after undergrad, which is what a lot of people do. So maybe you could tell us, you know, what your background was with getting into science and then how you got into research. Absolutely. And um, thanks for having me. This is really exciting. Um, and one thing I did want to just uh, start off with, I don't have my own lab. I am a research scientist in Christy Townsend's lab. So it's like um, I work under her umbrella lab. So her umbrella is growing. But we've had a very long collaboration that starts off with um me being her research assistant back when I was just doing my master's. It's a really good point that lots of people are doing research and they don't necessarily have their own lab. They're within a group of other people. This yes, dispels this idea that it's a lone mm-hmm. scientist with their lab doing their own thing. Like yep. it's really important to have that collaboration. I think I think it's wonderful because it allows you to have a little more control over what you think your end like career looks like with a terminal degree of a PhD, because there's still not a lot of talk about what you can do with a PhD. You're just, oh, okay, that's your academic path that's getting more and more narrow because there are not enough jobs for all of you out there. But you don't need to have your own lab and run your own lab and make sure that you get funded. You can work within a lab, a larger lab that can support um, some of what you need by providing the facilities, but you still support yourself. So you're still writing the grants and you're still bringing money in, but you get to study what you want, which is not something you get in, in pharma or an in industry where I thought I wanted to end up, but I've changed my mind since. Um, so I guess I'll start with your question. Finally, <laughs> how did I get here? Um, I knew when I was an undergrad that I wanted to do science, that was very clear, but I also loved the humanities and I loved art history and I ended up getting you know, a degree in that as well. But I didn't want to go to med school. That was very clear in my mind. And So why was that an option? Did you think you had to do med school? Because it was one of the first things that I was even asked by my advisor when I first met him as a freshman. This was at BU, which was a fantastic experience. Um, but I was asked when I came in, so what's your track? Are you MD, JD? Like, what? where are you going with this? And I'm like, okay, I didn't know that I only had those two options. <laughs> and um, I am you know, a child of immigrants who didn't really understand the system here. They just wanted to make sure they did everything in their power for me to be able to go to college. But they also didn't know what the best, like how best to guide me as far as what would be a good career and, you know, a life for someone in the country that they weren't quite understanding at that point. and they they knew I was always interested in um, in science and biology. I remember my my first pet was a goldfish, and uh, 
it was sick for a while. So I knew it was going to eventually die. And when it did, my dad's like, oh, let's go, you know, bury it and have a little fishy funeral. I was like, can we cut it open first and see why it died? So, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I think I was like six or seven at the time. So they thought, okay, science is the way for you. And he has been my greatest proponent of career choices and constant supporter every time I wanted some you know crazy science idea like oh I want to go take this course in high school that my school offered where you can start working at an anatomy lab through like a cadaver lab at a local um, medical school and he was just like sure. I think that's a great idea. And my mom was the one who was like, oh, are you sure? There's a lot of formaldehyde. Maybe you shouldn't go. My dad's like, absolutely. She wants to do science. Fantastic. Let's support this. So I was very lucky to have that support, especially as a woman in a field that um, was and still is for a lot of us very dominated by men. And it does feel like a boys club. My first job right after undergrad, um, I got hired as in a, a startup so it's sort of like full circle. I'm now having my own startup and I started off in a startup. And I was actually uh, the, the only girl working there. It was a small company. There was only about a handful of people. And I remember one of the, the coworkers who was, you know, a supervisor, supervisor above my supervisor coming in and in a joking manner uh, saying, oh, we're letting women into the lab these days. I thought we'd just keep them downstairs in reception. And I'm like, wow, okay. <laughs> so, and this was the 2000s. <laughs> this wasn't 1950. It's stunning to me that when those statements happen, that, and then if you're the only woman in the room, you, you're put in a position that you can't really react in a way where you want to. Well, at the time, I didn't even know to be really incest about it because I was thinking this has to be a joke. Um, and because I did have a, a very different experience growing up in the sense that I had the men in my life being very strong supporters of my desire to, to want to do things that weren't necessarily always girly. As a tomboy, I wanted to do things that, you know, I always wanted to play with the cars, not the Barbies. Like it was, I, I didn't fit a stereotype that was supposed to be subscribed to me at that time. And I always felt that that's okay until I sort of left this pocket <laughs> that I was living in. Um, and realized that, wow, okay, I don't know how I would have responded had I had a different support system when I was younger. So I, I feel like at this point, anytime I, I come across younger women who are, are wanting and going down this path and might not have confidence, it's like, it's my job to make sure that they know that they can do this. So you were at this startup. Um, what kind of work were you doing? Um, I was working with di building diagnostic tools for can early cancer detection. Oh, okay. Any kind of cancer in particular? It was for pretty much any type of malignancy. So it's going to let you know that, you know, you have a malignancy, but it's not going to tell you where. So it's one another one of those, you know, double-edged swords. Do you, do you even want to know at that point? Um, it was meant to be a good tool for tracking um, coming out of uh, remission in a sense, like you have a pretty good idea as to what that cancer would be in that, in, in that situation. But it, I did learn a lot through that process. Uh, a lot of the things I learned were that scientists don't always make the, the best, um, CEOs. And here I am. 
<laughs> which is why we're transitioning the company to somebody who has more of a business skill set, who's a, our, a co-owner of Neurite, um, as far as uh, CEO duties. Yeah, as well. No, as far as president duties. So I'll still stay the CEO, but I've learned that there are certain things that are not suited for my particular skill set. And that's where you need to let other people help you, especially if you want to grow and, and succeed. Um, well, that makes and- a lot of sense to me, actually, because you've spent so many years. I know we're jumping around a little bit, but you spent yeah. so many years. <laughs> no, no, it's good. You spent so many years with a science that why would you have those skill sets, right? There's only 24 hours in a day. You can't, like, exactly. I think it's few and far between the people who could possibly maybe even have all of those skill sets. And I, I think mm-hmm. it strikes me that one of the most important things to figure out is what you're good at and what, you're, what you have to delegate. And then you find yeah. the right people to, and, and it, you know, sometimes it's delegating and sometimes it's just passing the baton so they can do it. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, and some people have trouble with that. And yes, I struggled with that when I was younger too. I felt like, no, I'm not going to delegate because I, I need to get all this done myself, either because this is my responsibility and I didn't quite understand that there's this idea of teamwork <laughs> um, or because I felt like, you know, it's going to be done right if I do it because it'll be done exactly the way I want it. But sometimes what you want isn't necessarily the best for moving forward with something. Um, but have I even answered the question of how I ended yes. up? So you, you, <laughs> you graduated with a biology degree. You did not do the JD or the MD route that your advisor insisted was your only no. way to go when you were 18 years old. Yeah. And you ended up in a startup and, and I know you didn't stay there. So what was it about the startup field and maybe, maybe life with just a, a bachelor's degree? And I don't mean to discount a bachelor's degree, but you're, you're limited in what you can do yeah, sometimes with that. Absolutely. Um, so I knew I wanted to go to grad school as I was graduating. Um, my, I always had a pipe dream of being a vet, but at a very early age, I found out that's never going to happen because I'm allergic to pretty much anything with fur on it. Um, so <laughs> I was like, all right, grad school, there's, there's gotta be more science stuff out there. And I wasn't quite sure which path I was going to go down. I didn't know if I was going to go just straight biomedical or biology. At one point, I was even thinking like behavioral ecology. So it just, I knew it was going to be science, but what kind of science? I was still figuring those those steps out. And I thought, you know, working in a startup was exciting because you get to wear a lot of different hats. And I, my passion for science comes out of curiosity. I want to know how everything works, which is why it wasn't this constant, you know, I I wasn't always having this desire to only do this type of science. I feel like any science I would be in, there's so much to discover, so much to unravel, so much to, you know, take apart and try and puzzle together that I would have been happy no matter which way I decided to go. But I was looking for that extra bit that was going to make me really excited to go get up and go to work (laughs) even even if I ever lose that curiosity Uh, so I worked while I did that and it got to the point where I realized that I was very tired of being told how to think especially when I felt that I was can think for myself and had not have the ability to test my own hypotheses and theories and not really be an integral part of 
further developing the technology uh, where I was working. So that made me angry <laughs> at first. I didn't like being dismissed. So I was like, all right, what will make people listen to me? And I went back and I started doing a master's degree in biotechnology at Harvard Extension School, which is how I met Christy, actually. So she was, she was uh, the, my instructor at that point. And that allowed me to really explore something that I felt like I was getting more and more involved with because biotechnology allowed me to kind of mix in both things that I was interested in. So I had the science, I had the mystery and the, all the puzzles that you can solve, but it also had this, I want to, it's like an art form developing technology. It really feels like there's an art form to it. And that was my other passion that I always had to sort of like keep under wraps because remember my mom going, you're never going to make any money as an artist. <laughs> you're like, Do this in your spare time. <laughs> so I needed to find art in other things. And there's a lot of it in biology, but there's also a lot of it in engineering and technology and creating something where it didn't exist before. And I was very interested in adipose tissue biology. I just loved fat. I loved everything about it. And so that's how I ended up working for the lab that Christy was postdocing in at the time. And it was an adipose t- uh, metabolism lab. And it was, it was the best organ I could ever think of working in because I found it so diverse, so capable of doing anything. It can store energy. It can you know, d- use up energy. It has all these other cells within its environment in one tissue. It gets bigger and smaller, like things grow in and grow. It's just fascinating how this one organ that gets vilified all the time, you really literally could not live without. So I found at that point, the thing I was super passionate about. And Christy, when she got her appointment at UMaine to um, uh, run her own lab, asked me if I wanted to be her grad student. And I was like, wow. Okay. I was planning at that point to go back to Europe and do my PhD there because they have this really neat deal where you don't have to teach. So you just go in, just do your work and it's fairly quick and easy and fast. And I was really deliberating. Like, do I just finish up my master's and then go to Europe? But I mean, Christy really made me an offer. I could not refuse. She was like, these are all my projects. You can work on whichever one you want when I move. So you're not going to come up with a better deal than that. No, that's pretty fantastic. That's wonderful. Plus I already had a, um, a good working relationship with her. Like I was her research assistant while she was postdocing in, um, you Sang's lab. So it was already, you know, I knew that this, this could work. Like we, we were able to communicate with each other, which is something that I feel like a lot of grad students don't understand when they're, they're, you know, doing their rotations and deciding which lab to work in. It's like, it's, it's going to be a two-way street. You need, to, you need to find out fairly quickly whether you can work with each other. And then I did my PhD at UMaine where I studied innervation of adipose tissue. So I still had that adipose tissue that I was really excited to continue studying. And that's through my thesis work. Um, that's how we discovered what we're calling adipose neuropathy. So the dying back of nerves within adipose tissue in obese and diabetic animals and obese and and diabetic humans as well. So is adipose tissue 
always it's always fat, right? This is my pure ignorance of biology. Coming yeah, it's um no, sorry, I probably should have used the term fat. It is it is fat. There are different types. Well, that's why they think you can't use just that term, right? Because it's it's way too general almost. And like you said, it does all these different things that we don't think about. So I just I just want to make sure I'm clear on exactly what it is, the, the tissue part and the neuropathy. Sure. So adipose, like the generic term for all adipose is still going to be fat. It is okay. just, there's, there's brown adipose, there's beige adipose, there's white adipose, and there's like subcutaneous, which is right under your skin and, and visceral. And the subcutaneous tends to be the healthier fat versus the you know visceral fat, which we consider less healthy. Um, but as far as the innervation goes, we've known for a long time that you need nerves communicating with pretty much every part of your body. Otherwise, they're, they're, there's no communication. That part of the body, you know, the cells don't have any signals. You just it just dies away. So, the surprisingly, the idea that there's nerves and fat wasn't everyone's was like, oh, there's nerves and fat, and you have to stop and think and we're like, well, yes, it's living. You know, tissue, there should be nerves in there, but not a lot of people were considering the importance of it. Um, there was one, uh, the researcher in our, in our field that's pretty, you know, did all the groundbreaking work on this, Timothy Bartness. He showed just how important innervation or nerves and fat are by denervating. So like cutting off the supply of nerves to fat and you can see the tissue get unhealthy. You know, it gets larger in mass the animal becomes more unhealthy and it, you can't burn off the fuel. So it affects that thermogenic fuel burning capacity of um, specifically subcutaneous white adipose tissue. So, so the adipose neuropathy is the dying off of the nerve endings just in the, in that tissue. In, in that tissue. And if you think about it, most small fiber, well, all small fiber neuropathy, Okay, there's a caveat here. Most small fiber peripheral neuropathies will, the dieback will start off in your like in extremity. So it'll be like the tips of your fingers, but the skin of the tips of your fingers and toes, but it's, all, it could be anywhere really. Like you hear about it, you know, in extremities, but it could be anywhere on your skin because it's not, it's sort of from the outside going in, going, this is conjecture. So one of the longest nerves in your body is the one that goes through your toes because it it's actually the cell body is up in your spine and it has to go all the way down your legs to your toes. So it's just like one giant nerve that's just branching off all the way to the bottom. So it has, there's a lot of space there to potentially develop neuropathy at since we don't really quite understand what causes neuropathy for diabetic peripheral neuropathy, there's some evidence that it could be glucotoxicity, but it could also be lipid toxicity. And that's still in the realm of being figured out. Um, at least we know that if we can control it better in diabetic state, then the neuropathy symptoms seem to go away. And so by control it better, you mean modify diet, exercise? I mean, what does that mean? Uh, so better glucose control can be achieved through multiple ways. Yes, diet is absolutely one of them. Um, sometimes, and this is a sad reality, people don't take insulin when they should because it's so expensive. That's going to throw everything off. Um, and it's very dangerous. It's, I mean, it could be life-threatening, but it's, you know, when you, choice of 
your medication or food or a roof over your head, it, it can be very difficult. And then exercise, I've always been a great proponent of. The goal with exercise is like, don't think of it as a goal to lose weight. That's the wrong way to think about it. It is really like a, a poly pill for so many things that are more important than what your weight is. <laughs> Because you might not lose weight, but you'll have beneficial effects. You'll have you'll have improved glucose tolerance, even if you don't see the numbers on a scale shift. Your usually your muscle mass will improve, and that will be a sink for the extra glucose in your blood. Um, your fat tissue will change, and it will be healthier, even if it is still significant in size. So when people talk about exercise and their motivation for it, I, I was kind of have to like put my little, get on my soapbox for a second. It's like, I hope you're doing this because you understand why you're doing this. Like, it's, it's great that you want to lose weight, but even if you're not losing weight, don't stop because there are so many benefits to it, including what we think is maintaining nerve health within adipose tissue. The, uh, the mental health aspect of the working out. Like yes. that's what I, I've known about it for years, right? Like most people, but the pandemic just hit it home. I went way up and how many times a week and how many times per day, sometimes I worked out and it's just, it, it just became this really interesting when I step back to think about it, all those different pieces that these, you know, these things that we don't really understand how it works. We just know it's better. Oh so. yeah. No. And, and for, for the mental health, it, it we do understand some of how it works. There's like neurogenesis that happens through exercise. And I, even 20 minutes of just moving around every day, like vigorous, you know, moving around every yeah. day is yeah. going to make such a big difference for mental health. So I, I think it's really interesting when, as you were talking, I was thinking, so how, how does neuropathy happen with diabetics? And you just said, you don't know. We don't know. We don't know the answer. We have theories, um, but the answer we don't know. And part of what Neurite is doing is trying to find out what the causes of peripheral neuropathy are. So we're we're also looking. We will be looking at biomarkers um, and trying to see if we can correlate something with early small fiber neuropathy. Then at least we'll have some targets for you know, researchers to pursue along with us as well. But the goal is to, to help the field understand more about peripheral neuropathy. And like right now, it's, I feel like it's becoming even more relevant because there have been a lot of reports of peripheral neuropathy following COVID-19. And, and we know that the virus attacks nerves. So, but again, we don't know why people end up with peripheral neuropathy in that situation. The only one we have some under or, or better understanding of has to, is um, autoimmune peripheral neuropathies. At least there, there, there's a pretty good treatment where you get antibody infusion treatments, and it does help alleviate the symptoms and you know sort of halt the progress of neuropathy in those situations. But that is much a much smaller percentage of people that are um, most likely going to get peripheral neuropathy because we're looking at millions, you know, hundred million diabetics and pre-diabetics in the U S and 60 to 70 of them are going to 70% of them are going to get peripheral neuropathy at some point. So being able to catch it really fast. So you can drive home the idea of control your diabetes to prevent this from getting worse 
because we know there's a connection there. We don't know exactly what, you know, we haven't pinpointed what part of it is that is leading to it. So there's something about obesity, something about diabetes. So, so obesity, fat- we, you don't know obesity either. You just know it's there. Yes. We don't know the fine tune mechanism. We just mm-hmm. know that with obesity, there is peripheral neuropathy, both in the skin, and it's been shown by um, many labs at this point, um, as well as what we show for the first time was that it extends below the skin surface and goes into that subcutaneous adipose tissue right under your skin, which is metabolic, which can be very metabolically healthy if it's, you know, if you're maintaining a good nerve supply. Okay. So I think I know the answer to this, but I'm going to make sure because we talked about it a little bit before we started this. Mm -hmm. There's, there's no cure right now for neuropathy. Um, and you had said that, you know, it's only in the last 20 years that people have really talked about figuring this all out because medicine, like, please correct me if I'm wrong. Medicine wouldn't even diagnose it because there's no cure. So why bother kind of thing? That I would, I would hate to put a full blank in my experience. That's the experience I've gotten from speaking to a lot of doctors and patients. I think we can put it in another way where, um, it's, yeah, a lot of times, you just, you won't get a diagnosis because there's no treatment. And if there's no treatment, it's harder to bill for a diagnostic test. If there's no potential for a cure. What you're trying to do with Neurite is identify it early so that it can be stopped. And mm-hmm. then I'm assuming at some point, if, you know, if the pandemic has shown us anything, it's that scientists have given enough resources can really do a lot, right? We don't yeah. even we don't even need a lot of time anymore, right? We just need a lot of resources. And so assuming you write your and I'm gonna make you explain what it is that you're doing in a minute, but what you can do is identify it so people can stop the decay for lack of a better word. And then maybe at some point five or ten years down the line there would be a treatment for it that you may yeah. or may not be involved with. Is that kind of the idea? Absolutely. There are plenty of groups out there right now working on treatments for peripheral neuropathy. It's, it's become um, much more in the forefront. And, and I do think the diabetic pandemic that's been going on for, I guess, the better part of 30 years now, it's been, yeah, 10, 2010, yeah, but started about, say, 30 years ago. I mean, we're, we pretty much hit the roughest patch in 2010. Things have been slightly improving. Um, but that global pandemic has just made us much more aware of the comorbidities because so many more people were getting them because of diabetes and peripheral neuropathy. If you think about 60, 70% of people getting them, it's a really high percentage. So diabetes is a very high risk for diabetic peripheral neuropathy. And I think because of that, we've had more research into treatment for potential treatments for small fiber neuropathies. And the, the other big uh, driving force, I think, is cancer and cancer research because chemotherapy, certain chemotherapy drugs are well-known, peripheral neuropathy is unavoidable, and anyone receiving those drugs gets monitored and checked to, you know, you get a sort of a baseline assessment and then they try and see at what point you are developing the neuropathy and then you can change the dosing uh, and try and prevent it from getting worse and worse. But I've heard from oncology nurses that patients will try and lie about how they're progressing because they're so terrified of being taken off this life-saving drug or even, you know, messing with the dose a little bit. So getting a cure from the neuropathy 
there's there's a lot of uh, driving factors behind it right now. <laughs> it's really interesting, right? Because you don't want to, because you said it's it's under the surface so much. You don't. It seems like you don't really realize how bad neuropathy is until it gets so bad, right? And but cancer is right there. So yeah. I, I can totally relate to people who'd be like, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. Mm-hmm. I'm fine. Um, yeah. Yeah. I might live with pain for the rest of my life or, you know, right. Some yeah. people are unable to, you know, they have to stop driving because they don't have feeling in their legs. So they don't know if they're hitting the gas or, or, or brakes or it's dangerous, but it's yeah. also very painful and pain is, you know, it's hard to, hard to see somebody in pain, especially when you've had chronic pain for so long, it's easy to hide it. All right. So what it is, what is it that you are working on it at New Right? for diagnosis of neuropathy? So we are using um, a micro needle electrode array to get a functional. (laughs) That's so cool. I can totally see where your design and the technology is coming in. This is great. So we're working with Dr. Rosemary Smith over at UMaine. She's a biomedical engineer. You, You know who she is. Yeah, she's an expert in microfabrication of micro needles, uh, but we're using slightly bigger ones than the ones that she's hers. You don't even notice. You can't even see those are there, but uh, she's been with us from the beginning of this project. Like she's really helped make it happen. And it's been fantastic having her as a mentor as well. Her, t- her engineering team has helped design this array. So it's a micro needle electrode array that can record nerve activity. So like electrical signals coming from the nerves within a certain area of skin. And we're using those nerve recordings, like that electrical activity from the nerves as a way of determining whether, you know, whether and when someone could be developing small fiber peripheral neuropathy. So does it require a baseline measurement and then continuous measurements at various I don't mean continuous, like never leaves your skin. I mean, come back two months later, four months later, something like that. Ideally, we would love to see this as a screening tool because the goal is for this test to be fast and cheap. So a lot of neuropathy testing right now is expensive, hard to get, and, you know, focuses on the larger nerves. So if you're looking for nerve activity, which is really the best way of determining whether a nerve is healthy or not the recordings that are being, the tests for that that are being done are the nerves that are affected later. So it's not really small fiber peripheral neuropathy. At that point, it's like mid fiber peripheral neuropathy. And some patients don't get diagnosed for years because of this, because there's just no good functional assessment for small fiber peripheral neuropathy. And we're hoping that our device will change that. We still have a ways to go, but we're, we're at that critical phase right now where we're transitioning from animal studies to human studies. So it's a really exciting phase to be in because you're now, you're now at that point of like, okay, we've made it work in this preclinical model. It's just one hop skipping away to human, but it's like a gorge. You know? So how hard is that? Does that, does it change the agencies you're dealing with? Does it change... Oh, it changes so much more than we realized when we first started, (laughs) because now it's not just the technology really isn't changing. You're still using uh, mice or mammals, we're mammals, nerve activity is going to be similar. The thing that is 
the parts that come into play are yes, now you have to worry about a lot more than just, you know, getting approval to be able to do this at your partnering institution in an animal model. That's, that's pretty much it. And then making sure you have the funding to afford the personnel and the parts to make, you know, your device. At this phase, you have to sort of take a three-pronged approach where you need to be working on the technology, preparing it for it to be adjusted to like human skin. Mouse skin is very thin. We, we only needed, you know, a couple of, you know, microns to two millimeters to get, you know, all the way through into the tissue underneath. But human skin is significantly thicker. So there's a, an adjustment there that needs to be made. Um, there is um, a manufacturing component that we didn't have to think about as much beforehand. But now because this is going to be used in humans, is it biocompatible? Is it, I mean, some of these things we, we did think about beforehand, but there's much more that goes into it because you want to be going down the road that's going to make the FDA happy too. And, you know, have an IRB to deal with and then, you know, patients to recruit even, you know, when we get to clinical trials, that's a huge endeavor. It's, it's millions of dollars to get through that phase. So yeah, it's different. <laughs> <laughs> it's different. <laughs> you go from a hundred, you know, hundred, five hundred thousand to now five million. That's it's quite a big jump. So this is interesting in that you know your training isn't in anything really beyond the science, right? The design a little bit and the and the science in that aspect of it, but the things that you're talking about that you have to think about and manage are way beyond that. So how hard has it been to sort that out it's honestly it's been fun sometimes it's been a little like how are we out of our depth (laughs) but um we've had a lot of great programs to help us get through it like we did um the uh, we were like the first cohort in UMaine's uh, center for innovation and they did this MRTA accelerator so they really helped us think about how commercializing because we weren't thinking about commercializing or you know Christy had this idea of we have this problem where we can't really see these recordings early on let's see if we can fix it and then you know they were the ones that were like well if you can how can you apply this outside of just your basic research so we've had a lot of good mentoring from them and then we did Top Gun which I'm sure you're aware of um that kept us going further and thinking more about the financial aspects, the commercial aspects. Like, are we, are we really giving people what they want? Like who are our customers? Do we even know who our customers are? So Myrta and Top Gun really helped us uh, get through that and understand what questions we need to be asking from a more business-minded perspective, which is in the beginning, I have to say, not a very comfortable place for me to have been because you get to a point where you start to become a little idealistic <laughs> and then you forget that, well, you know, there is a, there is a bottom line <laughs> at some point that you have to consider uh, and you don't want to, but unfortunately you need to, if you ever want to get your idea out there. And so how much are you able to now focus on the science versus the other stuff? So right now um, we're finishing up, work under um, an NSF phase one STTR. And that, that was, you know, I had to focus on both a lot. And especially since part of it was 
doing the the NSF I-Corps program, which is very intensive and you get to learn a lot about customer discovery. But moving forward, and this is why I think we're, we're, we're sort of doing a little reshuffling where our co-owner will become president and he has a business management background and he has the technical skills to, you know, move us forward, but also the managerial and financial skills to make those decisions. And that will allow, you know, us scientists to focus more on the science. So I think over the past couple of years, we were where we needed to be. I think when you're in a, in the early phases of any sort of, you know, biotech startup, you need to be kind of doing it all on a shoestring budget. So you're going to be the one wearing all the hats. But it gets to a point where, okay, now you know this this could be something really good. Then you need to get the people who are right for the job to do that job. So you don't end up like my first employer startup, not, you know, not moving forward. How do you feel personally about going from this really cool basic research project to something more applied and more in depth where you were... There's still aspects. It. Yeah. I mean, there's I still aspects it. of what you're doing that you still don't know. Like it's, it seems to me almost like this perfect mix of you're still figuring out some basic research, mm-hmm. but you're also applying it. And you can, you said you've had all these great conversations with patients and oncology nurses. Like you, you could see an end game for who you could help, which is a real treat. I would imagine for an awful lot of scientists who never, they they stay focused on basic research and that's not a slam. It's just, that's where their world is, but you're really bridging the two in a lot of ways. Yeah. And it's exactly where where I wanted to be. I wanted to be in a place where it's the science doesn't just stay in its own bubble, but it gets translated to society as a whole. And, And it, I feel like the, the ability to see what you're, basic research can do when it's taken out of the bench and moved into the clinical sphere is super exciting because it feels like, wow, okay, this, this is actually helping somebody. And you know what, that somebody might be me one day. So like, we, we still don't know how, you know, what we're doing, how it will affect or how many people it would end up affecting down the line, but it is exciting to be a part of seeing it happen. But I just think it's really cool and really innovative that um, you're making us rethink what adipose tissue and fat is really good for. Like, what is it really there for? Because, you know, I remember years ago, I heard Christy talk about brown fat. (laughs) Most people were in the room were like, what? There's all different kinds of fat. Get out of here. And then, you know, so then now it's just all these really other interesting aspects to it. It reminds me that as much as we think we know about things, there is still so much more to learn. Oh yeah. It's absolutely. Pretty awesome. Yeah. So. And I think it's important to, um, to, I think for, for patients too, and just, you know, the general public to realize that medicine is, an art form. It is, I mean, they're called the medical arts. Our physicians, our scientists, we're non-fallible. We're, I guess when it comes to scientists, people are always a little skeptical of science for whatever reason, but they seem not to want to trust scientists, probably because we make it very clear, like we're figuring it out. Like we don't know the answers. Our job is to try and figure out what some of the answers are. And we're going to be wrong probably just as often as we're right. But we'll keep you updated every time we find out how much, you know, how wrong we were and how right we think we are this time. 
But with doctors, patients, I think it's part of the, the feeling of you, you want your doctor to be infallible because they're treating you like your life is in their hands. So you, you forget that they also don't have all the answers. So being able to provide some of the science to help physicians have the answers to, you know, make it easier for them to treat the patients. I just, I kind of like that being a part of that process. It's really cool. And it helps, uh, we were talking earlier about how it helps, it helps the patients just even know that they have something right. Even, yeah. even just that, that knowledge, knowledge makes things easier to deal with. Um, cause you don't feel like it's just you, right. It's, it's yeah. just, it's this thing that no one knows about. That's, it's just, that makes Absolutely. it that much harder. We didn't even think about it that way until we heard it from patients when it was just you know, a random conversation where, you know, we were asking like, what, how, how would have your life been different had you had a diagnosis earlier, even though nothing would have changed. You still wouldn't have been able to receive treatment. You still you know, would have no cure. And um, the patient we were talking to, they were like, it would have been life altering. I wouldn't have gone years thinking that this is in my head, that there's something wrong with me, that no one believes me. It would have let me prepare for my future, knowing what to expect. And those were things that we didn't even consider, we didn't think about. So talking to patients has really helped us to sort of reimagine how we as a company want to function and and really um, reaffirm that we want to be very much a patient-centric company. Like we we're data-driven. We're not going to be making any decisions based on something that's not science. But at the same time, we want to make sure that we're listening to the patients and what their needs are. Magda, this has just been really great. I really appreciate your time and um, uh, even more than that, your enthusiasm. I I love that you roped your dad into dissecting a goldfish when you were six or seven. What a guy! I now I kind of want to meet him. And uh, I'm hoping I can rope you into science festival again in 2022 when we're back, when we're back, we're not doing it again until 2022, just, you know, cause it's not totally right. safe, but your work is, is among some of the coolest stuff that's happening in the state. So I think people need to know about it. So thank you. And this is, this is awesome. I loved it. Thanks for listening to the main science podcast. You can subscribe on Apple podcasts, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating and review. It will help more people find us and help spread the word about some of the remarkable people doing science in Maine. The Maine Science Podcast has received support from the Maine Technology Institute and is recorded at Discovery Studios at the Maine Discovery Museum in Bangor, Maine. The Maine Science Podcast is produced and edited by me, Kate Dickerson. I receive production support from Miranda Bouchard and social media support from Next Media. The Discover Maine theme is composed and performed by Nick Parker.